This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, I'm Sandra McCracken, and this is The Slow Work. We are all creatives at heart, no matter what career or calling we find ourselves in. Inspiration can happen in a second, but the work of creativity only happens when we're patient enough to stay with it. It takes grit to see it through. I love hearing what this looks like for musicians, poets, painters, writers, and advocates. So, I've been talking to them, and I want to invite you to listen in. As you do, I hope that your faith story gets tangled up in your work story and that your creative mind would be renewed by hope and possibility. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, I'm Azure, producer of The Slow Work. I wanted to say a quick thanks for listening. We're so glad to have you. This week, Sandra talks with author Brett Lott. Brett has written 14 books, fiction and nonfiction, but is most well-known for his 1991 novel, Jewel, which became an Oprah's book club selection some eight years after its publication. In this conversation, Sandra and Brett discuss the practice of showing up to do the work over the long haul. They speak of destiny, patience, consistency, and the power of the arts to call us back to who we really are. During the conversation, Brett referenced a poem written by a dear friend, and we asked him to give us a reading that you will hear at the end of this episode. Hey, my guest today is Brett Lott. It is so good to have you here with us. Thanks for joining on The Slow Work. I'm happy to be here. Man, well, I am a big fan of your writing. It was in 2020, went back and read Jewel again. And you've been doing this a while. And I'm very curious, going back to the beginning, did you feel a call in your life toward this? Or did you keep finding yourself pulled into the work of writing? Good question. I had five majors in college. And I quit college halfway through and became an RC Cola salesman. But I also read my brains out growing up. I love books. I mm -hmm. love stories. But I never thought about, you know, oh, this is going to be what I'm going to do. You know, to refer to it as a calling is a little hard to imagine. I think sometimes there are callings that you don't even know you're being called to. You know what I mean? That they, yeah. you are going there. Yeah. Whether, whether you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going there. You're still going to go there. So, you know, the idea of it being a calling kind of happened later on in grad school after, you know, my first year of grad school, which was a disaster. I remember going through workshop this first year and the professor calling me to his office at the end of the semester and saying, Brett, I see no reason why you shouldn't be in our program, but I see no reason why you should. And I, that, at mm -hmm. that point, it was like, this is not a calling. You know, this is the guy saying, get <laughs> out of here. We're trying to winnow you out. But thankfully, my wife, um, Melanie, we've been married 43 years now, said, that guy's full of it, and let's stay here. So she maybe might have heard the calling more than I did. But after that happened, I just had a big cathartic moment where I kind of began to understand what writing is, and then I started publishing things. And what happened was I thought this was about a writer writing a story, that that's what a writer is. A writer's a writer, and then they write a story. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is that stories exist and have existed forever. And my job is to just kind of, as the writer, mm -hmm. get into the river that's been flowing forever and just, you know, ride on that river uh, of stories that already yeah. exist. And so 
the calling came after after a few years of doing it. And then I really did realize, okay, this is mm-hmm. what I'm really supposed to be doing. So it was a, like the slow process of, of coming to realize mm-hmm. the calling rather than saying, I have a calling, I better go do this. I can think of people in my own story where there's some people that said the comment that your professor had, where they kind of push you, like a little bit of agitation, and then other people that are your cheerleaders that can see something you may not yet see. And I I feel like we need both because I think I've needed those agitating voices (laughs) as much as I've needed the, the, the clear voices. This, this story about that professor is one of the, the hallmark stories of my life. And I always finish it with saying, that is exactly what I needed to hear. The guy was trying to winnow out mm-hmm. who's here in the, yeah. the graduate program. And I really did need to hear at that particular moment in my life, I needed to hear somebody say, look, as they say down here, I live in Charleston, bark or get off the porch. It's <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> make a choice. Are you going to commit to this or do you mean this or not? And if you're not, get out of here. Yeah, that's good. You're in Charleston now and you grew up on the other coast in California, Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. Or, more up, Orange uh, County. Than I was in born in Culver City, but uh, we moved to Buena Park and then lived in Phoenix from the time I was nine to 16. My dad got transferred. Then we moved back back to Orange County. This is so funny to think about that you were an RC Cola salesman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You were in, in forestry and then marine biology. These right. these are not close to <laughs> your, your final uh, job that you ended up doing, no. which is what I think that's what's so intriguing about this idea of being pulled along in a story. What did you learn from some of those jobs that you did? Were there things that you took with you that are still with you? I took, for, for one thing, my dad, you know, my dad worked for RC Coley, started out in the 50s as a truck driver and then was a salesman and supervisor, you know, on up the ladder throughout my lifetime. And then he worked, he worked and worked and worked. And I grew up seeing somebody who worked and he mm-hmm. was in, in our common, you know, parlance now, you would call him a workaholic, but he was, I don't have any memories whatsoever of being expendable because my dad was working. Mm. He was there, but he also worked. And that's how I learned this work ethic. And then, you know, we were like 12, 13 years old. We started working for RC, sweeping parking lots on the weekends, sweeping lots at the RC Cola plant and washing mm. trucks and doing this sort of just work so that I grew up knowing what work was. And when finally it comes around to being a writer, you know, the way you become a writer is you sit at a desk and you make yourself do what it is you're supposed to do. You don't, nobody's, mm-hmm. nobody's coaxing you into the room, opening the door and saying, Hey, we've been waiting for you to write motivation. That work ethic was put into me real early on so that, you know, my writing life was spent basically getting up early before everybody's up, making coffee, praying, and then getting to the work. So that's mm-hmm. what ethic I bring from, but also from working with people, you learn how people think, what they do. If you're paying attention, the world's happening around you all the time. And and I was always just paying attention to people and observing and um, reading tons of books growing up. So I think that's a major part of being a writer too, is just being around people 
and not being siloed up in an academic institution. I, I really value the whole time I, I paid my way through college from undergrad and grad school, and I had to work to do all that. And I sound like, you know, somebody's dad now, but, but uh, you know, you have to work <laughs> to do these things. And so I didn't yeah. grow up being siloed up in that sense of somebody's going to take care of me. And that yeah. meant interaction with other people. And that's what writing's about seeing other people, paying attention. Creative work is sometimes like if you're staring at a blank page that does feel like looking out at the stars or outer space. And I think it would be hard to know where to begin if you didn't have some sort of structure or a mm -hmm. routine, mm -hmm. which is, I think for different people, it can be a different kind of routine, but I do think you're right in having, having figured out a few things that work for you and then mm -hmm. you keep coming back to them and it's almost like a ritual. I had the opportunity to meet Wendell Berry and he, he writes on a yellow legal notepad <laughs> with a, his own hand, you know, yeah. and then moves it. I guess Tanya then like types it and helps to do some of the typing, but he really takes a lot of pleasure in just being able to actually write something. And I can, I can relate to that. I feel like I can't think if I don't have like <laughs> a pen and paper or a pencil next to me. Yeah. But showing up and setting your alarm and creating that ritual, especially when family life pulls you in a lot of different directions. Yeah, it's very true. Routine. You know, the hardest thing about being a creative is the creating of it. And for me, it's about self-discipline. Writing is self-discipline. Mm. What's the key to being a writer? Self-discipline. And uh, mm. that's tough to do. Flannery O'Connor yeah. is my hero. Flannery said that most people want to have written which is they want to hold the book in their hand and say, look what I did, rather than sitting alone on their butt writing, oh, man. doing the book, you know, writing the book. Yeah. I always am trying to get my students to hear that thing. You know, it doesn't happen mm -hmm. until you're sitting alone and doing it. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. The really good, rewarding things that we experience really do come by way of some struggle. And music is the same way. You know, like if I'm sitting down to write a song or something, by the time it's done, there's been quite a process to get from here to there. And I've heard you talk about even writing in fiction where you talk about having to move somebody from where they're sitting in their chair into the first few lines of the book. And I think the same thing with music. Like, I want somebody to hear it and just immediately be taken somewhere with you, you know? But that doesn't yeah. happen. It doesn't always happen the way we think, and it and it does take a lot of intention. It's a good reminder that, okay, this might be a little bit painful to get, <laughs> to, yeah, to, get to the end result of this. You studied with James Baldwin. I mean, can you tell us a story about him? Like, what was it like getting to work? It was, it was really, it was, it was wonderful. It was strange. It was, it was a, I look back and think of it as really one of the most important things 
that happened to me. And that's not just a grandstand for, for James Baldwin. It was that um, yeah. we had this class. He was called a five college professor in that the consortium got together. So UMass, Smith, Mount Holyoke, Amherst, Hampshire. They, they uh, chose three people from each of those schools to go to this workshop that he was going to teach. And we were all workshop people and workshop, you know, is where people will write something and give and pass it around the class and you go home, you ruminate on it, write up about, you know, comments and things and come back and talk about it. He had no, no vocabulary for that. He'd never taught before for one thing. And, um, mm-hmm. So we were all these ready students, you know, like, oh, James Baldwin's going to workshop our stuff. He had no idea how to workshop stuff. He, he was a writer, you know, he wrote, yeah, yeah. he didn't write things and then show it to 12 people and say, hey, what do you think, guys? It was not his <laughs> life, you know? So we would have, for the first few weeks, we'd try to this workshop stuff and it wasn't, it was, it was good, but it wasn't very successful. But then he would also talk about literature and art and Finally, after I think about five weeks, six weeks, we sort of surrendered to what we should have done all along was to listen to James Baldwin talk about art and literature. And basically he (laughs) talked about how, you know, if you're called, you're called and you have to pay attention to that call. You have to do what it is you are, you are called to do going back to that sense of Mm -hmm. calling again. Um, Mm -hmm. And just how important and redemptive art was, how important and redemptive literature is. But what happened at the end of the semester, we had a party. We're just students. So we had this party at the apartment of one of our students, and we was like 12 students at Jade Baldwin, and we were having this party. And I cornered him in the kitchen. I, I really, I was like, I've been with James Baldwin a whole semester. What? So I cornered him, and I said, you're James Baldwin. What can you tell me? That was exactly what I said to him. You're James Baldwin. What can you tell me? Because I wanted to know, you know. He looked at me and he said, once you know how to do one thing, move on to the next. Hmm. And what he was saying was, don't keep repeating yourself. Once you figure out how to do something, do the next thing. Expand yourself by not repeating yourself. Repeating yourself is easy. And, and once you figure out what you want to say, just to keep saying it is dumb. Each book, I can march through each one of the each one of my books and tell you exactly what I was thinking about in terms of how to do something else. You know, the first book was this. The second book was like, well, I did that one on that first one. Now I'm going to do this on that. And each of my books is a different book because of what he said to do. And it's served me well. Hmm. That's a really good challenge. I, I guess I would just say living in Nashville for long enough there's a sense that you figure out something that works and then you just do that as much yeah. as possible. <laughs> just like <laughs> the sorry. laws of like commercial success are completely opposite, which is what is so That's refreshing true. and challenging about hearing this. And the great, the great artists in all these different fields are ones that keep pushing into new spaces that'll mm-hmm. move beyond genres and they will move beyond their ability. How do you keep pushing yourself to do that. I mean, when you do something and you you sit back and you say, I'm really proud of this last thing that I wrote, what sparks the new idea for the next thing? Is it always coming to you from some new source of inspiration? I, for, to back up a second, I never sit and say, oh, I'm so proud of what I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I look at it and go, man, that was not what I was hoping it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> there is, uh, there's always a little disappointment. Yeah. Everything looks great when you start and then you get to the, it's like, well, <laughs> that didn't turn out like I played, but 
you oh know, man, I relate. One of my books is called The Hunt Club, and I was telling my agent the whole time I was writing. I was like, "Oh, I'm writing a murder mystery, a murder mystery," because that was what I was thought I was doing. I'd never written a murder mystery, so <laughs> let's write a murder mystery. So. I kept saying, this is a murder mystery in my mind. I'm writing a murder mystery. So I give it to my agent. My agent calls up. She goes, this is not a murder mystery. It's another Brett Lott book, which <laughs> means it's about family. It's about relationships between people who love each other and not necessarily can stand each other and still love each other. You know, And, and I think mm -hmm. that's basically what I write about. Because you've lived on both coasts, you explore Southern culture really deeply, and you're not from the South. You're from California. <laughs> you know, you mm -hmm. studied up in the North. So mm -hmm. has that been a part of what gets you into the new thing? Is it just like definitely. actually location and being immersed? Yeah, definitely. Although it usually happens later and after the fact. I mean, my first, yeah. first novel is called The Man Who Owned Vermont, and it takes place up in Northampton, Massachusetts, where we lived for grad school. And then the second one also takes place there. But that was after I'd moved away and was in Ohio. My first job was at Ohio State teaching remedial English. Mm -hmm. But I wrote and that first one and started the second one while I was there, not living in that place. And then Jewel takes place down in Mississippi, which is the place we visited many times when I was growing up. But huh. most of the book takes place in California, where I grew up. But here I was now at that point, I was living in Charleston, South Carolina, teaching at the College of Charleston. So, and it wasn't until I'd lived here for, I think, seven years that I wrote The Hunt Club, which is the first book of mine that takes place down here. And there's two others that take place down here. So it takes a while for things to set in and then, you know, write about them. It's not easy to just start writing about a place um, yeah, without just having two weeks. thought about it and actually been away from it. Drop your bags and then yeah. you start writing. That's actually, I've never heard anybody say that, but that that makes so much sense that it would take a little bit of time for it to kind of, for your body to process it and to process what you've seen in a place. And there's also maybe something in there around memory and nostalgia, how we can see uh -huh. things a little more clearly through that. Now, I don't think that your writing is particularly nostalgic, but it is so specific. Like there's such precision and authenticity in the writing that it does reflect a place can you tell me a little bit about what do you think of as precision in your writing when you're describing a place? You know, that's always a, a consideration. And again, Flannery wrote that when she writes, she pictures a monstrous reader sitting beside her. And the reader is saying to her all the time, I can't see it. I can't see it. I can't see it. I don't get it. And so she says, you can't write to that monstrous reader. You can't kowtow to it. You know, you can't. Mm -hmm. You can't please it. What you have to do is be more precise. I always think about that. I tell my students all the time, one of the biggest problems of being a writer is you know what you're talking about. But <laughs> the reader doesn't know what you're talking about. So yeah. there has to be this ability to step aside and be a reader at the same time that you're writing and thinking about the precision of detail, detail, detail. And uh, that is the way that somebody's going to get transported. I really do think, mm -hmm. you know, that that's how it works is through the precision of the writing. And uh, that just is a matter of just remembering and remembering and looking at pictures and, and going mm -hmm. online and looking at things and remembering and asking questions. I ask my wife questions all the time. I just ask her, now, did we do this? Did we do that? Who was it mm -hmm. I talked to? Because you're not perfect. And so to believe that your memory 
captures everything intact. It's just not true. Yeah. So you do everything you can to buttress that memory of yours, but also to also to rely on things that you do, in fact, remember. In Letters in Life, you're talking about like being a Christian and being a writer. Uh, and there's part of the book that is memoir and part of it is more about the writing process, which I love the juxtaposition of all this, but like, is the term Christian writer, is is that, I don't know, how would you explain that? When you say, I'm a Christian writer or a Christian blank, you're using the word Christian as a modifier, and that means it's like an adjective of what I really am. It's an element of what yeah. I really am. I really am a writer. So when you say a Christian writer, you're diminishing the Christian part of it, which is, to me, that's just not what it is. I mean, you're a Christian, mm -hmm. you're a believer, you're of Christ. Oh, and I also do this. So whether, you know, you're a writer or you're a plumber or whatever, you bring to that who you are first and foremost. Mm -hmm. You are a Christian first. You also are somebody who writes words down in a sentence. So that's how I always think of it. You've had so much success as a writer, specifically this this overnight or not even overnight, one day success with the book Jewel, yeah. which is a, it's a fascinating story because you had written it sometime before and then you'd written a few other books and then all of a sudden it gets picked up by the Oprah book club and it just like explodes. And yeah. the book is, is still the same book. You are still faithful to the same work. You're making the same art and one of them pops up. But when you're describing this whole thing, like I, I don't think of you as the Christian writer in the Christian writer bookshelves. And was that intentional for you in the very beginning, like before all this success and bestseller list? Yeah, did, you have, um, did you think about that? No, I didn't think about that at all. This is total true. I didn't know that there was a Christian publishing world. I mean, it wasn't uh -huh. part of my consciousness. I was in the secular... Mm -hmm. Schools, I was learning what I was learning. I was writing what I was writing. I was reading who I was reading. And I was saved. You know, I had been saved. I was saved when I was yeah. a freshman at Northern Arizona University at a Josh McDowell rally. So, and that had, that was who I was. But I was going through this training, as it were, about being a writer with no sense that, oh, I'm going to write Christian books. I, it just never, ever, ever occurred to me. It was, I just wanted to write good stories. I published my first three books with Viking, and then the the fourth one, which was Jewel, was bought by Simon Schuster. So they were, and then there were four books after that before Oprah called, and those were all, you know, <laughs> secular publishers. And it wasn't until this whole thing about Jewel, eight years after it had been published, and I'd published four more books, and I was writing then. I would always wanted to write a book that was a retelling of the book of Ruth in contemporary setting. It's called uh, A Song I Knew by Heart. And, you know, Random House took it. And then all of a sudden, Thomas Nelson, I think, stepped up and it was time to sell the paperback rights for it. And, you know, Random House already had their paperback set up. And then this Christian house steps in and says, oh, we'll publish it for a Christian stores, you know, Lifeway. I mean, it's Christian publishing has definitely been a big, like, oh, it, yeah. in this area, it's, it's like this, this, this whole space, but when you're yeah. not, and it's the same with Christian music, but I've always kind of, I think that's a hard thing is, is to be marketed for that as a, like you say, a modifier. It kind of puts a filter on everything. And 
mm-hmm. I think it's under, important to understand the audience, maybe, if that's a helpful yeah. way to think about it. But a story is a story, right? Yeah. I really had no idea that you could publish a book in two different ways, one specifically for Christians ah, and one right. for for the secular world. And it was quite an eye-opener that suddenly there was this other world that I hadn't been paying attention to. I've always written books with the, the ability for redemption and woven into the fabric. something more mysterious than we could just put a new cover on and repackage for (laughs) under the heading of Christian. And I'm humbled by it because I I have done music both in the church and for the church. And I've also just written songs that feel like my own Psalms or that feel like my own words of a story. It's, It's a little different in the sense of like fiction, nonfiction. I'm not sure that I could draw clean lines around those things in the work of songwriting. But I do think it has made me ask this question for a long time. Like, what does it mean to bear witness in these places where you want to tell the story as true and as precise as you can so that someone would be moved from that chair into a new space and hopefully a space of a redemptive place where they can ask questions that really stay with them too. And in, in Jewel, I feel like there were so many moments where I'm, standing in the middle of that room with Leston and Jewel and there's so much complexity where it's like it feels like they're just being held by a thread and I relate to that and I think that's what the best songs or novels are helping me to to say yes I I I see this that's very cool (laughs) I've lived that you know (laughs) yeah and I think I think what resonates with that is that that's where people are you write songs you write stories and people read them and identify with them. You know, that's I, that's what I think is why we do this stuff. We don't do this to yeah. alienate the, the listener or the reader. Yeah. We do what we do in order to bring a sense of identification, a sense of hope, a sense of community, bring people closer to themselves rather than farther away from themselves. Mm. You know, we're not trying to divide here by any means yeah do you think that's one of the it's interesting i think i'm still pondering that idea of like art confronting i've heard you say this like art confronts the self with the self mm-hmm. um kind of you're touching on that a little bit now but it's like do you think we get lost from ourselves a little bit like when you're standing in an art museum All the time. and you're seeing <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you you find a painting and you're standing there for 20 minutes and you just all of a sudden you start to find something about yourself that you had lost. It, it hap- I guess just saying that out loud, I just realized, oh, that's something we don't even name on a regular basis as a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we're very busy marketing ourselves and yeah. putting the little bio in our Facebook or our Instagram feed, but that's really yeah. missing the point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, I I'm, when I'm writing a book, I'm living another life. I'm being who these people are and definitely finding myself there, but not writing in order to find myself, but just there's a, there's a writer named Charles Baxter who 
wrote the wonderful book called Burning Down the House, and it's about sort of anti-essays on writing. It's like, don't believe everything everybody's telling you about writing. You don't have to have an epiphany, you know, that sort of thing. But he said, yeah. writing is like when you're staying at a friend's house and you get up early in the morning, you walk past a mirror you didn't know was there, and you, you for a second you say, oh, who's that? And then you realize it's you. And he said, that's basically, that moment is basically where you're trying to be when you're writing. You know, it's like, oh, who's that? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's me. And that comes through contemplation. It comes through standing in front of a painting. I, I just received the new collection of poetry from Dana Joy, a friend of mine, wonderful mm -hmm. poet. It's called Meet Me at the Lighthouse. And it's talking about the lighthouse. The lighthouse is a jazz club in Los Angeles, Hermosa Beach, basically. And and it's just a beautiful poem about back then. And I read it to my wife, and it just was, no, this is not, this is sort of nostalgia, but it was just bringing back. My wife and I met each other out there in Sunday school, and we would go to jazz clubs. And it just was, and this was, you know, 44 years ago. And our lives go so quickly. And all these memories are there, and they're ours. But it takes this poem that I'm reading to suddenly bring back, poof, here's all these things, this your whole life with your wife and its beginning points. Um, that's, I think, what good art does. It brings back to you yourself. And, you, you know, it confronts you with yourself, but it also brings back your memories and your the fact of your life and the fact that time is passing quickly. You're saying standing in front of a work of art, I read poetry to make me really stop. And mm. uh, here's this poem doing this work and bringing back 40-something years in a moment. It's like, mm. that's a good poem. Not nostalgia, but just bringing back my life. Yeah. That image is going to stay with me, that one of just like walking by and you see a yeah. glimpse of yourself when you didn't know. And you go, who's that? And oh. it's like, yeah, just the recognition. And it, in a way, that... It makes me think of when Jesus is talking about whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses it for, will save it. There's huh. there's an interplay here because we're saying good art is both self-identifying, but it's also self-forgetting because you're, you're seeing something else. You're seeing someone else. You're seeing a different character. And then you get this like reflection of yourself, but it's really not so that you will just fixate on your own <laughs> thing. That's true. You know? That's very true. And so there's... It, there, there's something really beautiful about what you're saying that has all these layers to it where I don't know the fullness of what Jesus is talking about there, but I do think there's some mystery in saying somehow in losing a glimpse of yourself or seeing it and then seeing something else, we are coming closer to knowing yeah. what he's intending for us. You know, I agree a hundred percent. I think it's, you have to forget yourself to, to find yourself. You have to, Yeah. I guess all of my books are about, the main character trying to figure out who they are. That's a, mm -hmm. And to me, that's the story mm -hmm. of being is who am I? Mm -hmm. And yeah. all those books are just different ways of approaching maybe the same question, who am I? And at the same time, mm -hmm. I'm asking myself, well, who am I? In the hopes that the way that I'm discovering who the character is in my book helps the reader figure out who they are as well. Mm -hmm. But these aren't really things you're thinking about when you're writing. You're sitting there writing a book. You're sitting there writing a song. I watched that documentary about the Eagles where um, oh, yeah. it, was either, it was Glenn Fry said he had an apartment below 
Jackson Brown before they were anybody. And he said it used to drive him nuts when Jackson Brown would be sitting there just banging on his piano, doing the same tune over and over all the day, so all day long. He's like, don't you know another song? But there was Jackson Brown, and then he turns out to be Jackson Brown, and he's hammering away, <laughs> writing his songs that are now you know iconic. But that's what it takes. It takes sitting in a room alone, trying to figure out what's yeah. the next note, what's the next word in this sentence. It's like the analogy of place. You can't really know the place until you've been there and then been away from it, you know, be able to reflect and to digest what you experienced or what you saw. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's a little bit hard to pin down, but a relief to know that as there is self-discovery in the way we engage with art or make art, that it, it ultimately is a relief to feel like I don't have to figure out all these big questions about who I am, but it's sort of happening so gradually and so graciously as God does this in our, uh -huh. Uh -huh. in, you know, he's, he's sort of unearthing those things as we read or, or, um, enjoy poetry or all these different forms of art are ways that he is unearthing some of these answers to the questions. I, yeah, I think, I think sometimes art can agitate, but sometimes art can just like, give us a little bit of relief as we see these other characters figuring themselves yeah. out in your books. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So exactly. I mean, if there's no conflict, there's no story. There has to be conflict. And that's <laughs> just true. like Robert Pinmore said that no conflict, no story. And it's true. Hmm. And agitation is necessary. Tension is necessary. Conflict is necessary. And Christ was talking about that all day long. You're right. You know, wait a minute. I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. Wait a minute. You know, yeah. talk about tension. So I get slapped. Yeah. I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. Ah, that doesn't square. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to my brother yesterday. He's 10 years older, and we were talking about our family upbringing where he's middle. I'm the youngest of five. He and I are both a little bit idealistic, I think, of the crew. And we we're both always like, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to, there's going to be a great thing. We're going to figure this out. And he said, I, I think I'm just realizing that that was part of the thing is we kept thinking, let's just get over this stressful thing so that it will be good. Then we'll be happy, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. think we've both come to this point where we can actually find some joy in knowing, hey, there's going to be something. This tension is not going to be alleviated. Maybe it changes form or it becomes a different point of conflict, but that it is in that that God continues to show what real joy is, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess that's a good comforting reminder. You know, there's one thing I wanted to ask mm -hmm. that I haven't yet, but you you listen to music when you're writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like I tell my kids, you shouldn't listen to music while you're doing your homework. <laughs> Should I change what I'm telling them? That's just one thing I wanted to no, be sure and ask you. No, no, don't know. You're, you're in charge. You're a parent. You know everything. That's That's the point, you know. Don't let them ever think anything otherwise. <laughs> um, I think that's really... I think it's inspiring. I can't explain it other than to say it really, I listen to music because it gets me to stop thinking about words. I, I mm -hmm. The problem with writing is that there are words involved and you're not trying to traffic in words. You're trying to traffic in impressions and scenes and, you know, details and atmosphere. And yeah, you're going to use words, but you don't want to be too focused on the words. So the, the music allows me to think about words, I don't know, acoustically, you know what I mean? I'm hearing yeah. the the story rather than thinking about this word, that word, this word, that word, what you're doing all day long as a writer. So I yeah. listen to that 
different music religiously. So the so each book has a different soundtrack. That's really intriguing. I I have thought so much about words in my kind of creative process uh-huh. and love words, but. I think that's actually another good challenge for me is just to think like what's actually beyond the words. What are you creating with, you know, we know there's a lot of power in words because they do shape a world, you know, they make, they make a world. And so thinking more about what the monstrous reader might be, or the monstrous listener might be thinking, can you see, are you in this world with me? (laughs) That's right. um, That's right. The the thing is that it's gotta be you. I mean, you have to be that person. That's good. Well, I'm so grateful for the time with you, Brett. It's been, uh, I've been taking notes on my notepad and these things are going to stay with me. So I really appreciate not just your writing over all these years, but just who you are. And thanks for sharing it with me. I appreciate you and this, this uh, venue, this, this good work that you're doing. And also you as a musician, I really do appreciate you. you. And that's to me, it's very meaningful to be um, interviewed by somebody who's also in the thick of it of Mm, being making things so thank you so much meet me at the lighthouse by dana joya meet me at the lighthouse in hermosa beach that shabby nightclub on its foggy pier let's aim for the summer of 71 when all our friends were young and immortal I'll pick up the cover charge, find us a table, and order a round of their watery drinks. Let's savor the smoke of that sinister century, perfume of tobacco in the tangy salt air. The crowd will be quiet, only ghosts at the bar, so you, old friend, won't feel out of place. You need a night out from that dim subdivision. Tell Dr. Death you'll be back before dawn. The club has booked the best talent in Tartarus. Jerry, Cannonball, Hampton, and Stan, with Chet and Art, those gorgeous greenhorns, the swinging masters of our West Coast soul. Let the all-stars shine from that jerry-built stage. Let their high notes shimmer above the cold waves. Time and the tide are counting the beats. Death, the collector, is keeping the tab. The Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper. Produced by Azure Phelps. Edited and mixed by Dan Phelps. Original music by Tyler Chester. Graphic design by Chris Bennett. And I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening.